Well, I want to welcome everybody and so glad that you're with us uh, for this fourth episode in Confronting Christianity with Rebecca, Rebecca McLaughlin, which is so good to have her with us. And uh, and just wanted to say that um, I need to learn how to pronounce your name. Obviously, I just tripped <laughs> over it again. And, uh, and that the other thing that we're going to be doing today is we're going to be tackling the subject of the Bible. So before we get into the kind of the controversy and the confrontation of that. Rebecca, would you start off by just telling us when when was the Bible, when did it become not just an ordinary book to you? Gosh, I don't know that it's ever been ordinary to me. I think um, I grew up in a, in a very sort of mixed church setting, uh, going to a church that I honestly wouldn't recommend anyone to go to where I recommending a church today. Um, but it, it was a, a, an Anglican church that followed the kind of Anglican liturgy where we'd read a New Testament um, passage and an Old Testament passage and a psalm, and there'd be certain kind of set prayers that had been really well thought through a few hundred years ago by, by folks who, who'd put some good, um, good thinking into it. So I, I think I didn't grow up, at least as a younger person, reading the Bible for myself. I, I grew up experiencing it in the context of church um, but I was a super keen little bean age about 10 I was going to church every evening by myself because I was just down the street and I enjoyed it and they had like evening services every week every, every day so um, I encountered it that way I think as as I grew and as I um, started to read the bible for myself mm -hmm. I just became more and more and I, I, I feel like I'm still in this process today I, I just became more and more like amazed by it um i think it, it's it's so striking to me that god didn't just sort of drop a pamphlet from the sky um whether like here are your four quick steps to putting your trust in jesus uh not that there's anything wrong with pamphlets like that they can be helpful tools but actually he he's given us this extraordinary sort of library of, of books um, revealing his character, revealing how he's related to his people throughout history, uh, revealing who we are, revealing who he is. And every time I come even to familiar passages, like I'm reading through Luke's gospel at the moment in my, my own devotionals. And every time I come to a passage, I think, wow, I had never, I hadn't really understood it in this way before. Like it's, I, I don't know if I'm just stupid or what, but I feel like every time, I come back to the scriptures um, or last night, night with our community group, we're looking at Romans, the, the sort of turn from Romans chapter nine to chapter 10. Um, and some of the pieces in there, I thought, gosh, I've, I've read this multiple times in the past. Mm. And I've never really understood it. Like I feel like I'm understanding now. And there are so many things here I still don't understand, but so much that I'm clinging on to. So I, I don't know that the Bible has ever been a, a normal book to me, but in some ways it kind of gets more and more abnormal in an amazing way, the more I read it. Yeah, no, it, and I loved your term that it's a library more than it is a book. It's really a library of short, different kinds of books. And, uh, and it is amazing to me that there have been seasons in my own life where um, the Bible has just come alive in mm. whole, whole different ways. And some of it is, you know, maybe the own, you know, what's going on in my own heart and my own soul, as well as um, growing and deepening in an understanding of something. And so today we're going to really be looking at the kind of the subject of, I mean, you know, Rebecca, you're a smart person. How can you possibly take 
the Bible literally. Um, and so what, what I want to do to get into that kind of quasi uh, question slash accusation, it's really a veiled accusation when, when it's posed that way, um, is help us to understand um, just the basics of uh, a literal interpretation versus a metaphorical one. And can you give us, so that we can make it a little less charged, can you give us a non-biblical example of that? <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons I, I really love that question and I loved writing that chapter in my book is because it's the only one I'm truly qualified to write about. <laughs> you know, degrees in, in English literature and uh, with a particular focus on, on metaphors and thinking about literal language and metaphorical language. I think a, a confusion that we often make or, or a mistake we often make when we come to the Bible is to think that you either quote take the Bible literally or you don't. Mm. It's kind of like an on off switch. And if, if you take some parts of the Bible literally and others not, then you're sort of illegitimately picking and choosing um, and you really should. It should be an either or. And actually, when, when we think even about normal conversations. We humans simply don't operate like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I could say to um, my little two-year-old son, when he walks in, into the door, um, or into the door, he often does walk into doors actually, but even when he walks through the door, um, I could say to him, uh, I love you to the moon and back. Hmm. Now, what, does that, what does that mean? He could say, well, mum, are you literally sending sort of love particles into outer space and having a return? And I'd have to say, well, no, but when I say I love you to the moon and back, I'm expressing something through metaphorical language that as, as he grows up, he would absolutely recognize I, I wasn't speaking literally. Or I could say, you know, if my husband's late home from work, which he frequently is, I could say, I'm going to kill you if you're home late again tomorrow. <laughs> he would hopefully know that I'm not actually going to kill him. He's going to hide all the sharp objects. He would know that I would, I'm not going to be impressed if he shows up tomorrow late, you know, right. trivial examples. But we, we navigate these things in our daily conversations. And, and we also recognize that you can tell truth through metaphorical language and you can also lie through literal language. Yeah. And so, so true and literal aren't interchangeable ideas. They're actually, you can, you can speak truth metaphorically, you can speak truth literally. Um, I just finished writing a kid's book and an example I gave there was in the film Frozen, if folks have enjoyed that either by themselves or with their kids. Uh, there's a song towards the beginning of the Frozen, uh, Frozen called Love is an Open Door. Mm -hmm. And um, Anna and her you know, newly discovered love, Hans, sing this song together. And she's saying, you know, she's always, they're both saying, I've always been lonely and like, like it's felt like they're always doors shut in my face and I meet you and love is an open door metaphor right mm -hmm. now as the film progresses we realized that Anna was telling the truth that was truly how she felt and Hans was just lying mm. but they were both using the same kind of, of language and likewise I could say something literally true like my father is a medical doctor and, and that's actually a, a lie I'm using literal language but my dad is not a medical doctor or I could say God is my father and there I'm using metaphorical language and I'm saying one of the most profoundly true things I could say about myself. Wow. I think that's really important to be able to understand the difference between the two, uh, the two different categories there of metaphor versus literal. 
but how either one of them has both the incredible capacity to be true or to deceive in that regard. So how does the Bible deploy metaphor then? Uh, firstly, very frequently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, I mean, I'm reading through Luke's gospel and when people say, oh, well, I take the Bible literally, I think, hmm, have you read even the words of Christ himself? Because right. if you have and, and you, you think you're taking every word of the Bible literally, you're massively misunderstanding him a lot of the time, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I don't think, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong uh, with your pastor knowledge, I don't think there is an instance in the Gospels of Jesus correcting somebody when they didn't take him literally and they should have done. Mm -hmm. Instead, he actually several times corrects people yep. because they took him literally when they shouldn't have done. Um, you know, for example, when he says, uh, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the onlookers like, well, it's taken like 40 years to build this temple. You're going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. What are you talking about? But Jesus was talking about his body and the text, right. in that instance, the text explicitly tells us. But other times, like when Jesus says, um, I am the true vine, mm -hmm. nobody, the most sort of literalistic Christian reader in the world would not look at that and think, oh, if only I had enough faith to believe that Jesus is actually a plant. Right. We know that he's speaking metaphorically. And so we think, huh. What do you, what, what's he trying to say? Or what, what is he saying when he says he's the true vine? Well, in the Old Testament, we see this, this metaphor of, of God's people as this vine. And, and so Jesus is saying he's the, the true Israel. Um, or like when uh, John the Baptist points at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God. Mm -hmm. We don't think Jesus suddenly turned into an actual literal lamb. We see that John is saying that Jesus is going to be the sacrifice for sin. Yep. So, so frequently in the scriptures, and we do it kind of intuitively, I think we do it so much without noticing um, that we kind of think, oh, well, I'm taking this literally when actually, no, you're, you're, you're looking for the, the truth that it's communicating, but it's not through literal language. And I think the other mistake that people often make is to think, well, if we can take some parts of the Bible non-literally, then that kind of gives us a get-out clause for anything we don't like. You know, it's right. any awkward statements that we would rather navigate around. We can just say, well, I think that's probably not literal. But some of Jesus' hardest teachings, he speaks to us through metaphors. Hmm. When he says, enter through the narrow gate for um, wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction and many find it, but narrow is the gate and small is the path that leads to life and only a few find it. I mean, that's extremely hard teaching of Christ expressed through the metaphor. That's exactly right. And, um, and, and it's, it's tricky to know the wisdom of uh, how to interpret the different um, aspects of the Bible, but some of it's pretty straightforward. Like some people will say, well, oh, okay, I'm so glad you're opening up this metaphorical crack in the door so that we can, you know, walk through it because I don't really believe any of those miracles anyway, someone might say. Right. So, so how do we not give um, a disservice to the text? For example, we stay with that example of, of miracles. Does the metaphorical interpretation of a Bible, of certain aspects of the Bible, give us permission to just say that the miracles were just kind of fanciful stories to make a point? No. Uh, and I think where I'd go there is, is Jesus's greatest miracle, which is his resurrection from the dead. Um, and the, the New Testament authors are very keen for us to see that they are claiming that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, that he had a, a, a body that could eat fish and talk with his friends. Um, and there, there was certainly some sort of 
unusual things about Jesus' body, his resurrected body. Um, but the, the claim very clearly is that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And as Paul puts it, if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So the whole Christian faith stands or falls on a very dramatic miracle. And honestly, I, I guess I, I place the other, the other miracles, um, Jesus' miracles, within between two poles. One is the resurrection and the other is creation. Mm-hmm. And if, if we believe, or if, if anybody believes that there is a God who made the universe out of nothing, then actually it's quite irrational to then exclude the possibility of miracles. To so say, well, yes, I, I believe that God made everything in the world, but I don't believe that he could turn water into wine mm-hmm. or heal somebody who, you know, just with a word who is sick at a distance. So it's actually not logical to believe in creation and not to be open to the possibility of miracles. So when people kind of say, well, you know, yes, I can believe in God um, and maybe Jesus rose from the dead, but actually I'm not buying the walking on the water. I sort of think, well, <laughs> it doesn't actually hold together with any internal consistency. And I think for a lot of people too, the, the grand exercise in missing the point is some people get so defensive of the miracles that they think the point of every miracle is to try to prove that God can do something. When in right. reality, the point of the miracle was a physical um, manifestation of a metaphorical reality of a larger point that Jesus wanted us to see. So in the example of water into wine, he wanted to turn the old ritualistic jars that were filled with water into the new sweet abundance of his grace uh, that would never run out. And so. Yeah, and there's often, as you said, it's often kind of overlap in the sense that that Jesus uh does miracles um, in order to make a a broader point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that takes away from reality of the miracle itself. So how can you help us to guide us in through the tricky navigation of the different, and I'll make sure I get the pronunciation right of this, literatures of the <laughs> of the Bible? Like, you know, there's poetry, there's all of these, there's history. How, how do you help us to navigate through kind of that minefield? Yeah, so first recognizing that there are all kinds of literature in the scriptures and that we wouldn't read a love poem like it was a, a, a grocery store list. And, and so we need to come with kind of different sensitivities to two different passages. Um, I, I think first we, we must always recognize um, that God's, God's word is authoritative. And so our comfort or discomfort with the text is not like completely irrelevant, but it's ultimately kind of irrelevant to what the, the text um, may or may not be saying to us. So I, I think you know, we need to be careful not to come in with a sort of posture where we're, we're above the Bible and we're sort of filtering through. Um, and to some extent, this is inevitable. Like all of us have our own biases that we'll bring to, to any text or any conversation. And so we, we're best to recognize that rather than pretend that we're sort of unbiased as, as we come right. to the text. Um, but then I think we need to we need to read the scriptures really carefully. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to read them in the context of, of other scriptures. Um, and I think it's fair to say that in, in the, the large majority of cases, like, I mean, I, did, I couldn't do a kind of percentage analysis, but if you, if you took the whole Bible, um, I would say that in at least, let's say, 80 or 90, let's say 90% um, of biblical text, it's actually quite 
self-evident mm -hmm. uh, whether this is um, a metaphor or a literal statement whether it's poetry or whether it's history in most instances it's quite obvious um, but certainly there are passages that christians like sincere well thought through scholarly bible believing christians simply disagree mm -hmm. and i think we should be i think we should be okay with that um, you know, one important example, I think, is how exactly do we read the first three chapters of Genesis? Right. Um, I think there are very serious Bible-believing evangelical scholars who would take different views. And I think we also need to recognize that, um, again, even in those three chapters, it's not just like an on-off switch, well, you either take this literally or you don't. A, one example that's always striking to me is when um, in, in Genesis 2, God says to the man, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day that you eat of it, you will die. And then as the story unfolds, we see that, that the man does eat from the tree and he does not die on that literal day. So then, you know, somebody who says, well, I, I read Genesis literally, I don't want to say, okay, we kind of have three options there. Either we say, um, God didn't mean a, a literal 24 hour period when he said day, he meant that once you eat for this, this tree, your, your death will become inevitable, mm -hmm. but it's not, not a literal day. Right. Or you could say, well, actually God is talking about something more important than physical death. He's talking about spiritual death and alienation from God. Also a perfectly valid reading of that text, I think, but not a literal reading. Mm -hmm. Or, and I think this is the least persuasive sort of theologically, we could say, well, God lied or God, you know, changed his mind or something, you know, that God didn't really mean what he said. And I think, especially when we're looking back at an ancient text like Genesis, it's easy for us to assume that it ought to be simple. And, and that, you know, we, we sophisticated 21st century folk come to it kind of almost like a children's story, kind of expecting it to be quite simple. And actually, I think it's quite complex. And, and to me, the, the, one of the big questions that emerges out of Genesis 2 to 3 is that question, wow, what, what if spiritual death is actually worse than physical death? And that is something to sort of mull over in our minds. And so certainly the, the biblical context can play on different levels, uh, different layers of meaning and interpretation. You know, certainly uh, the book of Revelation is probably one of the most complicated books to try to interpret. You know, sometimes the book of Revelation, when it's talking about an end, is probably referring to kind of the end of the temple or the end of the Roman Empire or occupation. And then and in other instances, it means something much more kind of like end of time, um, end of history kind mm -hmm. of levels. And you're right. I think most of the Bible is actually with just some very basic training is very easy to contextualize. Um, and probably one of our greatest mistakes is the, that we fail to contextualize the Bible. We pull a verse here and a verse there out of places and we divorce it from its original setting. And that makes it, that's what makes it more difficult for us to do great harm with the biblical text in terms of our misunderstanding of it. Yeah, yeah. I think though, and I'm curious if you have this experience as well, Rick, but the more I read the Bible, the more I feel a bit like, you know, when, when scientists sort of first discovered, not only can we look up and see stars in the sky, but that actually there are billions more stars than we ever realized. And the universe is massively larger than we ever imagined that frankly, my brain could even get around. Yes. And it, I feel like the more I 
read the Bible, the more I realize I don't understand. And that's not, I mean, similarly, I look up at the sky and I see, yeah, there are definitely stars there and there are a lot of stars and nothing has changed my, like nothing that modern science has taught us has changed my mind about the fact that there are a lot of stars up there in the sky. Um, but actually, so it's not that I kind of come to radically different beliefs at the more I read the Bible. Um, but I, I, I guess I become more aware of my own inadequacy in the face of the text and that there are so many things that I'm still learning. I just, I feel like I'm absolutely in the foothills. I, I agree in being in the foothills. The, the aha moment for that for me was having a doctorate degree and taking a group to Israel and thinking I knew a lot about the Bible and then realizing that my tour guide has forgotten more about the Bible than I've learned in my right, life. Right. And, um, and that there are connections and ways of knowing and understanding. Um, I, I, one of my heroes uh, was uh, one of my grandparents who took a Bible introduction class after he had, he had been teaching Sunday school for over 50 years. And he took a Bible introduction class, you know, when he was in his early 80s, because he admonished me, he says, the minute you think you've got this book all figured out, and that you've mastered it is the minute you've stopped looking at it through the eyes of wonder. And, um, and so there are many, many people, particularly in today's modern world, who, um, Rebecca, who take a very critical approach to the Bible, and their kind of disposition, you see this a lot with like a Bart Ehrman or something along those lines, that the Bible is just full of contradictions. And so it can't be true because it's got all of these contradictions. That's particularly lifted up with regards to the gospels because they're mm -hmm. different eyewitness accounts from different perspectives written to different communities. How do you, how do you handle uh, the people who levy that, um, that accusation? Yeah, I, there are all sorts of different strands of it. Um, so we definitely wouldn't be able to cover all of them at once, but I'll, I'll start with one. Um, people often make the point that you can read one gospel account and it says you know jesus told this story or gave this teaching and then you read another gospel account and you're like oh well wait a minute over here in luke's gospel it said that jesus was in this place when he said that and over there in mark's gospel it says something different for example or, or oh here jesus tells it in this way and there he tells it in that way so it must just be that one of these is wrong or maybe both of them are but they can't both be right because why would it be different in two different like contexts? Uh, you know, clearly they just didn't compare notes. Now, the the more that I in, in the last sort of year or so have have given talks and interviews um, like this, the more I've realised that quite often I will say similar things in different places, and I will also say slightly different things in different contexts. And sometimes I give the exact same talk in one place versus another, and I'm just like speaking from my own experience. The idea that Jesus only ever once told each of his parables, or only ever once gave each of you know his pieces of teaching, is is completely obtuse. Like we know Jesus was going from town to town and village to village and teaching, and it wasn't like oh gosh, I I already said that in Nazareth, so I couldn't possibly say the same thing in Jerusalem. Like. No, I mean, even this is way before there were recordings and video and audio and the things that we share around today. Even today, yep. people, like, yeah, like different speakers say similar and overlapping, but often different things that just have overlap in different places. So examples like that, I, I think, are pretty straightforward to, to reconcile. Um, 
there are sometimes instances as well, and I, the, the most helpful book that I found in terms of um, understanding more about how the Gospels were written is actually the book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses mm-hmm. um, by British scholar Richard Borkham, um, an incredible, uh, well-regarded scholar um, who is making the argument that the Gospel accounts are all based on eyewitness testimony. And in fact, he's, he thinks that John's Gospel, which was almost certainly the latest to be written, was written by an eyewitness himself, um, by John. So uh, he is making some very scholarly arguments supporting a, a much more eyewitness rich understanding of the Gospels than, than most scholars would have been advancing 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and one of the interesting arguments that he makes about the resurrection is that, um, you know, clearly the, the accounts of the resurrection in, in the Gospels are incredibly important to us because if the Christian faith stands or falls on whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead, it kind of it matters that we have that testimony. And he looks at the, the fact that um, in two Gospel accounts, you have different lists of, of women who witnessed the resurrection. Um, and some people will look at that and say, oh, well, you, you see, even when it just comes to the witnesses of the resurrection, the Gospels can't agree, agree between themselves. Borkham says, no, what's gone on there is that the, the person writing that particular gospel has named the people he spoke to. He's, na- he's naming the eyewitnesses that, that he was able to get this testimony from, which may have been a different subset of the women who were there than somebody else. And so actually, if you look through the gospels um, and you see sort of random people named who you wouldn't necessarily think would need to be named, he argues that actually that's pointing us to the, the individual eyewitnesses who are giving accounts of what they saw. Hmm. There's also, while we're on the subject of the Gospels, so there are many people who have that very critical stance um, of their contradictions so they can't be true, and then there's others, and this was popularized greatly by, I guess it was a little over a decade ago, the Da Vinci Code um, book that Dan Brown published that, you know, popularized the idea there were these other Gospels that the church suppressed their voices because they didn't like what they were teaching about you know, uh, you know, human sexuality or a variety of different topics, and they silenced those voices and lifted up these. Um, how do you, how do you kind of account for um, the gospels that we do have in what's known as our canon or our Bible today uh, versus the ones that aren't there? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's one of those things where actually the closer you look, the less compelling the argument becomes. <laughs> uh, when I was in Bible college, I read some of the other sort of so-called gospels, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas yeah. which are often touted as being sort of feminist uh, versions of Christianity that were suppressed by the early church. Yeah, as long as you don't read the last line of the Gospel of Thomas, you might have Indeed, some. yeah. So the, the end of the Gospel of Thomas, for those who haven't in, enjoyed it, um, uh, I think it's Peter says, let Mary depart for women are not worthy of life. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says something like, let her stay. Um, I, I myself will make her male um, so that she can become uh, worthy of life. I, I'm butchering the end there. But it's sort of, oh, strangely, like, directly misogynistic oh. statements right there. Um, the, the non-canonical gospels, i.e. the gospels that weren't included in the Bible, um, tend to be written substantially later and not connected to eyewitness testimony in the way that the Gospels are. Um, so you can make arguments by looking at the, the sort of non-canonical Gospels um, themselves. But I actually also find the, the idea that the Gospels, the four Gospels that we do have of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John 
the idea that they are somehow um, the early church's best spin on Christianity, very unconvincing, not least because of Peter. So, so Peter is a, um, a prominent leader in, in the early Christian movement. It, it seems likely that Mark's gospel was kind of Peter's memoir um, written down for him. And if I, if you or I <laughs> were writing our memoirs, we would probably leave out that part where we've denied even knowing Jesus barely a couple of hours after telling him oh, that yeah. we would go to death, you know, go to yeah. death rather than abandon him. I mean, the, the extent to which the Gospels are very embarrassing for the apostles themselves, mm -hmm. to me, testifies to their truthfulness, because why on earth would Peter either make that story up or let anyone else circulate that story if it wasn't true? I mean, the only... The only reason um, that that could have been circulated when he was such a prominent leader would be if it was true. And if he, and he, if he was wanting to say, you know what, that happened and I think it's important that people know. Yeah. Um, likewise, as is often remarked, if you were trying to get people in the first century um, Jewish and Greco-Roman context to believe something really extraordinary, the last thing you would do is say the witnesses were women because women's testimony at that time was not counted for much. It would be a bit like saying, saying that the resurrection was witnessed by women would be like today saying, you know, I, this amazing thing happened and I know that it's true because a few little kids told me. Mm -hmm. Like, well, kids make stuff up. Like, why would you believe a few little kids? But in the gospels consistently, it's women who are the first witnesses of the resurrection. And there are just all sorts of embarrassing things, which if the, the early church was trying to clean up what really happened, they would have done a much more thorough job than the Gospels represent. And it is true, the more you study it, the more you realize that. I shared that similar argument with a group of young adults one time on how the, how the Gospels don't present the disciples and the eyewitnesses in a very flattering light. And they were like, well, they probably valued authenticity and vulnerability. I'm like, you don't know anything about the ancient world in terms of like the hero culture of the Romans you know, so so the Greco-Roman world, the Jewish world, like you're imposing a 21st century value of authenticity on an ancient world and it just doesn't fly. So the more, I guess I would encourage people, the more you dig into this, the more, um, it's like that line, a little bit of science takes a man away from God, but a lot of science will bring him back. If you have questions about the Bible and you're concerned about them, I, I assure you, the more you dig, the more you will find the foundation and the veracity of this ancient book uh, has is really stood the test of time. Uh, I want to remind people that we can take a couple of questions and we've already had one come in. So Rebecca, I'm going to put this one your way. Uh, so clearly somebody is reading your book because they're referencing chapter five. Okay, so from chapter five, you mentioned that Martin Luther's disappointment with the Jews for not converting to Christianity contributed to the later program of extermination for Hitler, that there were some seeds that were planned that. So this yeah. person wants you to, can you help explain or point them in the direction to learning more about that? Yeah, so as is true, um, as we look back over Christian history, whether it's in the US or in Europe or in any part of the world, we will find things that we should deeply grieve and lament over and ways in which even folks we, we sort of see as spiritual heroes um, failed badly. Um, and a lot of people point to Martin Luther's anti-Semitism as a, a reason to not um, listen very carefully to what he has to say about other things. 
Um, and I'd want to say there, just a sort of opening remark, which I you know, try to make in my book, it is absolutely true that Martin Luther said a lot of very anti-Semitic things. I, I think it becomes at least a little more understandable in the context of the fact that he truly seems to have thought that the Reformation was going to trigger um, a, an influx of Jewish believers. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, from, from reading the scriptures, he saw the promises about, um, you know, there, be, there being a like influx of, of Jewish Christians, um, you know, coming at a later stage. And he, he was hoping that that would happen. And when it didn't happen, he was very disappointed. Now, that doesn't justify his anti-Semitic sort of statements, um, but it at least kind of gives us a little more context for them. Now, um, when, when Hitler came along and um, persuaded, and, and this, I mean, honestly, this should be terrifying to us because it is very recent and it, it, it happened in a, in a culture in many ways very like our own, um, a very sort of educated, sophisticated, modern Western cultural setting. Uh, he came along and he persuaded uh, average Germans that Jewish people were, you know, so far beneath contempt that they should be rounded up and exterminated. And, you know, this was a, a progression. Clearly, it wasn't, you know, he just woke up one day and, and said, you know, I have this, I have this great idea. Um, but he was, he, he wasn't starting from ground zero. Mm -hmm. he, he was starting with a, a history of anti-Semitism in, in the Jewish church and in actually you know, many other parts of, uh, of the Christian world, uh, sadly. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the shocking things, if you read through the history of the Crusades um, is, and, and again, as with much of Christian history, there, there are always two sides to, to the story. But one of the shocking things as you read the history of the Crusades is, is how um, Jewish communities were attacked by Crusaders. Um, on their way to supposedly sort of defend <laughs> Jewish territory. Um, now, there were many crusaders at the time who objected to this out of kind of Christian principle. So it wasn't like every Christian at that day thought it was A-OK -okay to go around attacking Jewish people. Um, but there's, there's a long enough history of, of anti-Semitism um, that you know, it should, should make all of us um, quiver really. And yeah, Hitler was, he was pouring, um, he was sort of planting in fertile soil when he picked the Jews um, as his scapegoat for all things and, and decided to launch one of the most terrific persecutions of history. The, the, let's, let's take this even to a harder level. <laughs> uh, this question came in last week and we didn't have time to address it and it's kind of better placed in the biblical Kind of chapter of our discussion anyway. Um, probably the most controversial topic to try to deal with with a biblical interpretation uh, lens would be understanding human sexuality today, specifically uh, the, the Bible's prohibitions against homosexuality. Um, how do you read those texts? How do you help us to try to understand those texts faithfully? Yeah, I would love, and I, I, I'm very happy to say a few things in the few moments we, we have here um, to give people a start. I would, I would no, love- No, you're just going to be able to jet ski on the water for a little bit. Well, I would love folks who are interested in that to, to read um, both chapters. I think it's seven and eight in my book. It's possible it's eight and nine, I forget, because it, it does require kind of careful 
work to, to treat these thoroughly. So I'll give you like a little uh, trailer, um, but, but take a look there if you want to hear, hear more thoughts. Interestingly, I, I think it actually comes back to what we were talking about earlier and the importance of metaphor in the scriptures. Um, when God made humanity, if you think about it, he could actually have made us so that we um, reproduced asexually. He could have made just one kind of human um, and like, you know, amoebas or there was a snake, I think, at a zoo in St. Louis back in the summer, like 60 something year old python that managed to have eggs all by herself. Um, you know, God could have made us like that, or he could have made every 20 years or so, he could have just like made a new batch of humans. But instead, God made male and female. He made sexuality and he made marriage. Why? Well, if we look at the, the sweep of the scriptures, we start to see this very powerful metaphor emerging where, where God is presented in, in the Old Testament as, as Israel's faithful, loving husband. And Israel is presented as an often unfaithful wife. Um, we see Jesus in the Gospels saying that he is the bridegroom, um, stepping into those shoes. Uh, we see in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul presenting um, human marriage, Christian marriage, as a little sort of scale model of Jesus' relationship with his church. And then we see in, in Revelation a, a great mighty crowd shouting out the wedding of the lamb has come and we see Jesus's marriage to his church bringing heaven and earth back together. So, so just as in, um, in the scriptures we know that um, God is talked about as father and so in the absolute best human father we can kind of get a little glimpse of, of what it means for God to love us like a father. So in the absolute best human marriage we get a little glimpse of what it means for Jesus to love his church. Now, how does that relate to the, what the Bible says about um, homosexual relationships? Um, and here, I, I guess what I want to say is, um, you know, back in the days before we all had cell phones, when if you wanted to take a photo, you actually had to use a camera. <laughs> you, you'd take a picture, you'd then fill up your film, you'd take it to be developed, and, and those little negatives would, would come back um, that the the store had developed into these beautiful prints, or in my case, usually terrible prints, because I wasn't good at photography at all. And often the way that we have taught about um, the Bible, what the Bible says about homosexuality, um, we, we've only given the negatives. Hmm. We haven't shown people, or we haven't seen for ourselves, the incredible kind of full-blown wall-sized print of Jesus' relationship with this church, which is a love across difference. Um, instead, we, we've only said, like, here are the boundaries, here, here are the no's um, around sexuality. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the big mistakes that we've made. And, and if we sort of see that bigger picture, the negatives make more sense. I think the other big mistake we've made is to buy into this idea that sexual and romantic love is the only really important kind of intimacy. Or at best, that, you know, there's sexual and romantic love, and then there's like parent-child love. And those are the two places where real intimacy happens. If we read the, the New Testament in particular, we see extraordinary expressions of love between believers of the same sex. Um, you know, Paul talks about us as a church community as being one body. Um, we're brothers and sisters, we're, we're fellow workers, we're fellow soldiers, sort of comrades in arms. And 
you know, we, he describes the Colossians or prays that they would be knit together in love, like these sort of very intimate terms. And even when he's talking about individuals, so um, I love his, his letter to Philemon, um, which I address at one point at, at length in, in my book as well. Um, he talks about Anisimus, who had escaped slavery under Philemon, as his son and as his very heart. Now, I don't know, Rick, how comfortable you would feel talking about a male Christian friend of yours as your very heart. Like, it's sort of, it's embarrassingly intimate from our modern perspective and from our sort of enculturated perspective. Or, or when he talks about being among the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother with her children. Like again, sort of embarrassingly intimate language. And I think part of what, what's gone wrong is that we, just like the world, though in a slightly different way, we bought into the idea that the pinnacle of human intimacy is, is marriage. And whereas I think the Bible presents us as an incredibly high view of marriage, we also have to reckon with the fact that Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Um, and that Paul, who, who wrote that beautiful picture of marriage in Ephesians 5, also says in 1 Corinthians that he wishes everyone was as he was, i.e. unmarried. Um, and so I think we've kind of created this situation where you're either in a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship, or you're kind of lonely and excluded. Um, and that's not the picture that the, the New Testament calls us to at all. Last thing to say, um, again, for the, for the sake of time, which is so much that's important to say, and, and for those who don't know, I speak as someone who, since childhood, I've always been more attracted to women than men. So it's not that I, I haven't come to the Bible kind of hoping that it will tell me that gay marriage is not okay. I actually would have been quite happy to, to discover, you know, as I dug further into the scriptures, that, that really, you know, there wasn't a problem there. Um, but whereas people often think that Paul, who, who wrote most of the, the sort of clear um, text on homosexuality in the New Testament. You sort of think of him as a homophobic bigot who was judgmental and probably didn't, you know, didn't understand uh, and look down on others. Actually, if you look closely at the text where he talks about gay relationships, first, they're always in the context of other sins. So it's not just like, here's this one thing that I care about. Yeah. Um, and second, they're also always in the context of um, an absolute repudiation of, judge, of judgmental attitude. I love, for example, in First Timothy, when Paul um, lists um, homosexual relationships, along, interestingly alongside uh, slave catching in a kind of list of sinful behaviors. And then he says, um, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy, worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Hmm. So rather than looking down on other people from his perspective as a, a single man, you know, possibly once married and widowed, possibly always single, um, certainly no indication that he ever had sort of inappropriate sexual relationships with anybody, rather than looking down on people, he says like, I am literally the worst sinner I know. And he says to, to Timothy, like Jesus came for me to show that even somebody as bad as me could be saved. And so I think we, we, we thoroughly misunderstand the scriptures in general and, and Paul's writings in particular, if if we say that you know he he just was sort of mean, bigoted, um, homophobic, and judgmental. And lastly, when he talks in in First Corinthians about this issue, and again, it's in a list of, of other 
other kinds of sin. And he says, you know, don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? And he lists a number of unrepentantly sinful practices that would um, buy you from God's kingdom. And then he says, and this is what some of you were. Mm-hmm. But you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus. So some of the very first Christians had come to Jesus out of um, same-sex sexual relationships. Um, you know, we don't have a vast amount of detail aside from that, but it's actually, it was quite common in Greco-Roman culture, especially for men. It was, you know, not really frowned upon for men to sleep with other men, um, it was so long as they were sort of maintaining the dominant position and um, fine for them to sleep with their female or male slaves often, etc. So we're not looking back at a kind of Victorian ethical, mm-hmm. like sexual ethics environment. We're looking back at a an environment which is had a, at least for men at least as much sexual freedom as, as people have today um and we see yeah, some of the first christians coming to christ out of that context i love how you give us kind of this permission to enter into the expansiveness of the biblical witness on particularly on difficult issues like human sexuality to not just see it as the negatives as you talked about, um, which are a part of the witness and cannot be just discarded at the same time to see it in the context of grace, forgiveness, truth, reconciliation, uh, joy, the invitation of even, um, you know, being invited into the very heart of God uh, himself. And so I know that that's just a little tip of the iceberg. It's a primer for people. There's obviously more of a chance to hear more of uh, what Rebecca has to say on that specific chapter um, in her book. Um, And uh, so Rebecca, just thank you so much for helping us to uh, go through these uh, uncharted and difficult waters to do this. And uh, just thank you for your wisdom that you're imparting to us. And we look forward to next week. So thank you a bunch. You're very welcome. Can I add one more thought? Um, My my dear friend, Rachel Gilson, who came to Christ out of a lesbian relationship when she was an undergrad at Yale, uh, wrote a brilliant book last year called Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Come to Faith, What Comes Next. So if you want to you know, save your money on buying my book and buy hers instead, because it, it's cheaper and much longer and better on, on these questions than mine is. Um, yeah, really, really brilliant and compelling. Born Again This Way. All right. Well, thanks for the recommendation on that. Thank you all for listening today on some really important and difficult topics. And we look forward to next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye, guys.